0: Good morning. I'm glad you could join us today. Um, If you're watching this by video, it's very likely that you are unable or uncomfortable to join us at our physical location for our physical service. Um, Right now, as you're hearing this at the very, very same time, if you're watching it on Sunday mornings, uh, there's the rest of Legacy Church, about 65-ish percent, give or take a little bit, Um, And I just know I speak for all of them when I say, we miss you. And we're looking forward to the time where you are able to come back and join us together as one church in one location. And I I think it probably bears worth mentioning how valuable that is to us, for all of us to physically be together. Um, I know in this last three months, it's probably maybe approached your mind, as it has a lot of people, What is it really that big of a deal that I'm not there with everybody because this Waffle pajama way of doing Sunday morning is working out really well to be honest with you And and I hear you but there there is value in all of us coming together before the world as we represent one body in one location uh, pursuing one Christ with one voice and you know, as the weeks go on, we're probably going to take a little bit of a look into the value of a corporate gathering, right? Because I think it's probably starting to slip for a lot of people. Um, that there is value when we all come together. And I'd love to just maybe retread or refresh some of that for you so that when you are comfortable coming back, when you feel like you are able to come back and join us, you know what you're joining. It's not just a thing we do. It's not really a small item or an asterisk or a bottom shelf value for us. Coming together corporately for a gathering is a very big value. And we miss you and we look forward to the time that we can see you again. But you know, as I've been thinking about this sermon and this moment, one of the things that I think is maybe a silver lining uh, for all of us during the last three months, which can we just admit has been crazy and it just feels like it gets crazier every week. Um, with our quarantine and with especially the racial trauma that's really been climaxing here recently, these two things alone, just the racial trauma that our nation is going through and COVID, it's kind of removed all of our hiding places as Christians, meaning we have been jerked so far out of our normal lives that we kind of are forced to see the real state of the union for our own souls. What really has been bringing us joy? Um, what has our trust been anchored to? Why do I have so much anxiety? We're, we really have no place to hide anymore. And, and listen, we're in the same place. Uh, when, I don't think anyone is exactly where they had hoped that they'd be. <laughs> I don't think anyone is really exactly where they want to be in their, what we'll call relationship with Christ, proximity to Jesus, connection to Jesus. It's very likely that you were hoping for something different, deeper in this moment. I don't think you might necessarily hate where you're at with Christ, but you're probably not all that ecstatic about it either, right, somewhere between being discontent and content, somewhere between being satisfied and very dissatisfied with where you're at with Jesus, kind of like whenever you're sitting on the couch and You are comfortable, and I mean finally comfortable, not kind of comfortable, but you got the Snuggie just where you want it, your your mug of whatever is within reach, only to realize that whatever is on TV is not what you're very excited about. The problem is is the remote is way over there, right? So you you start battling with yourself. Is it really that bad what's on TV? Maybe I can watch it because I am really comfortable right now. Just like that. in that gray zone, somewhere between being totally dissatisfied and totally satisfied, life for us can be dull. It can be dull. It can be boring. It's the hum and the noise of a stagnant, still life. Where we know that we can encounter Jesus and find more joy in Jesus, yet at the same time, we're kind of satisfied with how we're living our life and what we happen to be in the middle of right there. So listen, if you find yourself wondering, what happened to the old you, the robust, adventurous you, full of risk and full of adventure? You are in good company with the Church of Philippi as Paul addresses them today. He's going to be helpful because you're not alone. And Paul's not about to just lead us back to the adventure of the gospel with mere words. He's going to show us with his own life. And this is going to be very helpful for all of us. So if you have a Bible or a device that you use, it's always going to be helpful for you to turn there. Um, with me. If you don't, we're about to splash it up on the screen, but I'm gonna I'm gonna pick it up in verse 12, okay? We'll probably go back a little bit, but verse 12 is where we're gonna start, and this is what Paul tells the Philippian church. Not that I have already obtained this, and we're gonna talk about what this is here in a moment, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind, and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. I've been greatly refreshed by this passage. I've needed this passage this week. Because listen, I'm not the king of self-awareness, <laughs> but I do, I do know, and I have enough emotional intelligence to know that I am my best version of myself when I'm taking a risk. I know that sounds weird, but when I am sacrificing something that I've been holding precious, something that has meant a lot to me, something that's really got my heart when I lay it before the Lord, when I really take a big jump, when I pick a fight with the enemy, Um, when I put the things of the world down and pick up my cross, that is when I find myself to be the most robust, adventurous, best version of myself. It's when I'm reaching and straining, in Paul's words, and grasping for the Lord with such energy that I can't see anything else. It's like I've lost all peripheral vision and all I could see is Christ in front of me and I can't get enough of him. I can't get enough. When I was radically saved, as a junior on the college campus, this is exactly what happened to me. I risked everything and I loved it. I sacrificed everything I'd worked so hard to get and I loved every minute of it. I was stretching straining, reaching to get more of Christ every single day. My feet would hit the ground in the morning and I would start the day with Jesus, I gotta get more of you today. What does it take to get more of you? How can I get closer to you and get you closer to me? And my life was moving so radically fast and there was so much energy about it that those around me, they thought something was wrong. They were concerned for me. My parents thought I was in a cult because there was such a radical change. I wasn't in a cult, the gospel had arrested me. I had, I'd been attained by Jesus, and now I was going to do everything I can to reach and get as much Jesus as possible. But as the years stacked on, the noise and the, the dull hum of a very boring and predictable life started to find me. I'd be still. I'd be stagnant. And the goods of this world would start to compete for the affections of my heart. Listen, I'd have this voice in my head in those days, and even today, Luke, don't risk yourself, don't. It never ends well to risk yourself. Why would you sacrifice the things that are so important to you? I mean, be a fanatic, Luke, but be a fanatic in a moderate way, right? I mean, moderation in everything. There's no sense in being crazy about Jesus. Just be, just be kind of crazy about Jesus, right? That's one voice in my head. Another voice is, as Luke, you're getting older. You're cruising altitude. You're you're in a canoe that's not taking on any water. Why would you go on and tip it? Stop striving. You've done enough. Just relax a minute. Take in the scenery. It's not like Jesus is gonna love you any less. Why work so hard to strain and to stretch? Another voice would be in my ear saying, look, if you do that, you're gonna get burned like you always do. Every time you risk yourself in that direction, you get burned. There's just suffering waiting for you there. Why do that? Just go back to sleep. (laughs) And then probably the most piercing voice is, Luke, you're not enough. I mean, look at what you've done. Look at what you're capable of. You're not good enough, you're not smart enough. You're not skilled enough, you're not talented enough. You're just not enough. Why are you stretching and striving? Just stop, just be still. And just like that, my pursuit of Christ would take a backseat to a new life, one that was more boringly and predictable. And gone were the days of adventure and risk and sacrifice. Blah. But very simply, what I was letting happen is what Paul is speaking to here. I would let my past somewhat inform and dictate and speak to my future. I would let the, the voices in my head and the memory of what I've done and the things behind me and the things around me speak to what I should be doing in the future. And you do this too, we all do this. It's just a normal part of being a human being. We fix it in our minds that we're gonna double down and be super sober about following Christ just to get caught up looking over our shoulder to the things that we're leaving behind, just to get caught up listening to the voice of shame as it speaks to us on what we can't do. What I love about this passage is that Paul is a guy who had one goal and one goal only, to know Jesus more. That's it, that sums his life up. He's actually not that complicated of a guy. He just wants to know Jesus as much as possible. Now he knew that he would only reach this goal when he was face to face with Christ in the day of the Lord, that's when he knew it. But he fought for this goal like it was gonna happen here on earth. He fought for this goal because he wanted to get to know Jesus as much as possible before the day of the Lord, right? because he knew that Jesus is where the most joy would be found, which would mean that's where his life has the most meaning. That's where his life would be truly best lived. We know this because of two verses back in Philippians 3. He says something very provocative. In 3.10 he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul is just simply saying, I want to attain with my hands. I want to attain the Jesus who has attained me, even if it comes through suffering, even if it comes through celebration and resurrection and everything in between. Listen, I can be wicked just like anybody else. So when I read a passage like this, there's a piece of me, the flesh, that says, Paul, why would you do this? You know you're gonna get all of Jesus whenever you're dead and you've moved on to the next world. Why are you fighting so hard for it now? Does that have to be the number one goal in your life? You could probably have two or three others. Why are you making it so hard for yourself now to reach that goal now when you know for a fact you're gonna get it later on? Why are you stretching so hard? Here's the answer. He wanted to enjoy this life. You see, Paul's a hedonist, not an ascetic. Hedonism is one who pursues personal pleasure at great costs, and that's what Paul is doing. He's after the deepest joy and pleasure. He just knows where that's found. It's not found where pain is absent. It's found where Christ is present. I think we wrongly read Paul when we imagine him denying the things of this world because he likes pain and hates joy. It's the opposite. He loves pleasure and joy. Paul knew that all of this was available in all circumstances, even in suffering. and Wherever Christ was, he was going to make it his life's goal to join him. He knew the deepest pleasure is found the closer we get to Jesus. It's, it's kind of like if you go camping. You're up in the Smokies or one of our state parks, and it's maybe in the late fall or the early spring where the campfire is more than just decoration. <laughs> You kind of need it for heat and you know that you're really chilly until you get closer and the closer you get to the campfire the more warmth you feel and the brighter the light gets that's how we looked at christ the proximity determined the amount of joy he had and it didn't matter if there was suffering around him or celebration around him he was able to find that joy in christ in all circumstances so paul lived as someone who is always kind of dissatisfied. He's perpetually dissatisfied with his level of connection with Jesus. He always felt like there was more to be had. So we're not going to find him retiring, like like, like he's just trying to get this whole church thing up and off the ground so he can retire. We're going to find him stretching and striving and plowing and risking and sacrificing and doubling down on this adventure that the gospel has brought him into. But here's the big question, And where it really matters for you and me what is paul forgetting exactly he says forgetting what lies behind what is he forgetting and what is he grabbing for and why do we care why do we care now last week we looked at a resume that paul put before the church in philippi and it was an impressive resume a lot of impressive little bullet points in that and we walked through that i'm not going to go through that today just to say he had the best upbringing from the best family, from the best tribe, and the best nation. He knew the most, he did the most, he wanted it the most. He was the most Jewish Jew of all the Jews in the land, right? And he did that on purpose. By virtually saying, if anyone could be righteous before God without Christ, it's this guy. <laughs> and if you don't believe me, look at this impressive resume. But as impressed as you are with the resume, I think it's a big bowl of crap. Because all it's done has held me back from the one prize I have, and that is Christ. It slowed me down. It, it, it robbed me. It's not just a neutral thing. It's a negative thing. I'm glad to be done with it, says Paul. And now he says, forgetting. Forgetting what lies behind. Is, it, is this what he's forgetting? Forgetting. I mean, forgetting here, he obviously doesn't mean he refuses to remember. He just listed his big long resume, so we obviously didn't forget it, right? But he he's remembering pieces of his past, and we should too. There are things that we should not forget. He actually tells the Ephesian church in Ephesians 2, he says, remember that you, talking to the church, were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world but now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ so he's just saying remember that you were separate you were far off you had no hope you were alienated strangers but I want you to also remember that Jesus brought you near remember those things remember those things so what is he forgetting because this is important. I mean, you, you should recall your past, right? I mean, how far were you from Christ when he found you? Pretty far, right? Probably as far as I was. I would have those thoughts go through my mind, how good God is, because look where I was. I mean, I didn't deserve any of this. I didn't deserve his mercy or his grace. He should have let me run headlong straight into hell because that's what I deserved. I remember that. I'll never forget that. And I remember how he drew me near and brought me near totally despite me. I remember that. So what is he forgetting? Anything, anything that slows you down from finding more Christ. That's his new motto. Forget what slows me down. Remember what speeds me up. I think that's helpful for us. You need to forget anything that is slowing you down from your pursuit of more of Jesus. And you need to remember everything that speeds you up. This means that he would have needed to have forgotten his regrets, his past failures, his fears. I mean, do you ever think about Paul having to struggle with this? Paul must have had some pretty dark years in his early life where the voices in his head were pretty loud. The faces of all the people that he tortured and ruined probably coming up in his mind as he laid down to go to bed. I, I will bet, I would bet a paycheck that the enemy of our souls saved his fastest pitches for whenever Paul came up to the plate. And I think we can relate to this. Just the shame alone of what's behind us. We've talked about shame before in other venues and other moments and other sermons. I will just go just short enough to say that shame will find us in three ways. When you have done something grievous, shame will find you. Um, When something grievous has been done done to you, you will feel shame. But also, when you just feel different, unlikable, unlovable, like you should be better, you ought to be better, then you start to feel that shame come on you as well. Just the idea of you are not enough. That's shame's primary voice. You're not enough. So when you look at all the dumb things that you've done in life, and all the dumb things done to you in life, And when you agree with the voice in your head that says you are not enough, that feeling that you have, that's shame. That's shame. And I've always wondered how Paul dealt with that in the early days, right? How did he deal with that? Even today, I'm tempted to feel the shame that says I'm not good enough. That's the primary one. I don't necessarily have a bunch of shame on things that I've done or things that have been done to me. I've had my days, but now the predominant one is just the voice that says, you're just not good enough. You're not enough. You should be better. You should be smarter. You should be more innovative. You should be stronger. You should be, you should be, you ought to be. You're not enough. That's the shame that approaches most people today, I think, and it's likely affecting you to some degree because it causes us to look over our shoulders. We're not able to leave the things behind us alone. Shame won't let us. Can you sense the voice of shame, or the things that you've done, or the things that have been done to you, or all the things that you're so proud of, or all the things that are around you that are so attractive, all the goods of the world, the treasures of the world, can you sense it robbing you of the energy of stretching and striving and reaching for the prize of these upward, call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul's using the image of a runner in this passage. Not just a runner, but a runner at full throttle too. I've always said this, but I believe that Paul was either an athlete or a rabid fan of athletics. Paul was either kind of an athlete in his earlier days, maybe, or he was one of those guys that called sports radio all the time because he couldn't get enough of sports, right? This passage that we've read today has been on the back of not a few running shirts, as I've seen over the years. And this is what I know. After 12 years of coaching runners at the high school level. level, Competitive runners know one rule, you never look behind you to see if anyone's chasing you down. You don't do it, you don't do it. You find a point in front of you, you burn a laser in it, just one small point and you focus everything in it and you let it pull you in. I've seen firsthand more than a few races decided before the race was even done simply because a runner glanced over their shoulders and looked what lies behind, in Paul's words. One of the reasons you can't do this as a runner, just as a side note, is because it wrecks your cadence, the frequency and the speed of which your feet strike the ground. You you can't, if you're turning your torso, you can't keep the same cadence very well. The second thing is it just wrecks your concentration. You Can't work on your footwork, your breathing, your focus forward. It's it's just not a well, it's, it's, it's not a good strategy. It's never worked out well for anyone. And Paul is channeling this image because he wants you and me to remember it. He wants you to see in your mind's eye a runner, running, discounting all of the noise behind them, all of the distractions around them with a little laser focus straight in front of them that is pulling them in as they reach and stretch and strain and grab for the finish line. That's what he's trying to paint for all of us. But that's not that easy, is it? Living like that. Forgetting what's behind you and remembering what's in front of you. I mean, this is difficult stuff. We look behind us and we look around us and we let all kinds of things rob us of our cadence and our concentration. Friends, listen, some of you today, you have a past that is convincing you that you're just going to keep failing and that you're never going to be good enough, right? In different ways, different words. You, you sin in a million directions, but am I right in saying that there's really one or two or a few? sins that kind of stick out on the horizon the ones that convince you that you'll never get over them you'll never have any victory over them you'll always be addicted it'll always be a pervasive struggle sure you'll be clean for a a day or a week or a year but you'll always come back right so you don't strain you don't stretch you don't reach you don't forget what's behind you you don't forget what's around you you just kind of sit still Somewhere between being content and discontent. Some of you, you don't strain because you feel like you've done enough, right? You're content. Sure, you could always be a little bit closer to Jesus, but you're not mad at the life that you're living right now. So you don't stretch and you don't strain, and you definitely don't forget what's behind you or around you. You too, you stand still. You know that you could put the things of the world down and pick up the cross. You know that you could lose your life and then find it in Christ. You know you can do that, but you're not truly convinced that the goods of the world aren't really better than the singular good of having more of Christ. You're not convinced of it. And here's a litmus test for all of us. If you're currently refusing the adventure of risk and sacrifice, It's because you are allowing what's behind you and you're allowing what's around you to speak into where you're going. You're letting it shape your future. You know, stepping closer to Christ in order to experience more of Christ, that will most definitely mean suffering. Paul speaks to this in verse 10. We looked at it a little bit earlier. Some of you have been praying for a real relationship with Jesus, a vibrant one, a real genuine one. You need to know that you're also praying for suffering when you pray for that. You are. I'm not being a pessimist. I'm just quoting Paul. You're praying for suffering. Paul declares his wish for the sufferings of Jesus and how to share them so that he might share the power of the resurrection, right? What exactly does that mean to share the sufferings? We've we've talked about this before, but if you shave the highs and the lows off of a relationship, you don't really have a deep relationship anymore. But if you experience the highs and lows with somebody and you share them, sufferings and the winds, then you have a growing uh, relationship and when, when it's growing in depth, which is why a work acquaintance is just a work acquaintance until you are sitting with them as they cry over their beer on the wreck that is their life or their marriage or whatever. When you go to work the next day, they're a little bit more than a work acquaintance at that point, aren't they? You just matured that race or that relationship. You shared a suffering with them. That's what's happening, right? In your suffering, when you suffer through things, you need to know that you are sharing those sufferings with Christ, who to some degree shared in the exact same sufferings, to a degree. Christ has felt rejection, for instance. So whenever you've been rejected and you feel the sting of it and the shame of it, that again, you're not enough, and you feel the pain that comes with it, you need to know that when Christ sees you in that moment, his posture is of, I know how that feels. I've felt it, the pop, the hurt, the sting of rejection. You are not alone. We're together in this, lockstep. I've been there, tell me about it. I've been there. You're sharing a low with him and it bonds you closer. Very similar to when World War II veterans share a foxhole together, it bonds them closer because they've had some real hits together they're not just two people, they're two people who have bonded. We too, we gain a closer connection to Christ when we celebrate resurrection moments and moments of suffering. When you risk yourself, when you invite sacrifice, you are in fact adding adventure to your life, sharing the highs and the lows with Jesus. But listen, if you're willing to just trim all of that off and trim the highs and the lows off, then what can you expect to find as far as a relationship with Christ? Honestly, how how good can it be? You're you're left with some shallow relationship that you can't figure out why it's not getting any better And then you're left with finding joy in other places the goods that the world has to offer That's where I'm finding a lot of people today I think that's where I'm finding some of you bored with Christ fascinated with the world Right instead of fascinated with Christ and growing a little bit bored of the treasures of the world. And if you are fascinated with the world and bored with Christ, and you are living in this dull hum of a very boring, predictable normal for you, this is what I can promise. Unless you are able to walk through that risk and that sacrifice and put the things of the world down and forget what's behind you and reach forward, if you can't do that, you will always have a predictable life and a low-grade fever for Jesus. But never never something that's robust that gets you out of bed in the morning not enough to prompt a new strategy for getting deeper. I mean, some of you are in the same place you were two years ago, 10 years ago. Some of you haven't moved an inch. You're still talking about doing stuff, still talking about getting in that community group, still talking about getting serious about the Bible, still talking about starting to do this and starting to do that, fill in the blank, whatever it is, you're still talking about it but nothing is prompted a strategy because you're, you're, you're fine with what's around you and you're definitely fine with what's behind you and you're not reaching and you're not straining and you're not grabbing. Some of you are stuck, and you're bored, and you're tired, and you're looking back and you're not straining at all. You're looking to find your life here. Well, This is what Christ says in Matthew 10. If you find your life here, you're gonna lose your life, but if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. You will find it. And Paul believed him. Paul believed him. But here's the good news for you, <laughs> and the good news for me, is we're all a work in progress, right? No one's made it. No one's arrived. In admitting this much, it's gotta bring a little bit of freedom. I mean, you're free to admit that you're stuck and you're bored and you're living a predictable existence and you're risk averse and you're sacrifice averse. That's just part of progress. I mean, that's what Paul is saying here. He's clear. He's like, I've not made it yet. I've not arrived, by the way. I've not made it to where I want to go. And that's good for this guy. (laughs) And I hope it's good for you. And if you're able to get to the place where you know you're not where you want to be, and you know there's so much growing to do, and you know there's so much to put down, and so much reaching and grabbing, if you know that, you need to be excited in the fact that you wouldn't know that unless the Holy Spirit was showing you. You wouldn't care. Unless the Holy Spirit make this clear to you, you wouldn't even care. I love this part of the passage. Paul's clear. Everyone's in transit. Everyone's a work in progress. Paul is not where he was when he wrote this in Philippi. He's not where he was when Jesus knocked him on his butt off the horse on the way to Damascus. And Paul's not where he's going to be when he's looking at Christ eye to eye one day. He's in the middle. He's in route. He's in the middle, but he's not looking over his shoulder. He's leaving what's behind him behind him. And he is, remembering what speeds him up, but he's, he's very clear he's gonna forget anything that slows him down. This is where I'm at. Maybe it's where you're at. I'm certainly not where I want to be, right? I'm not where I was. I know I'm not where I'm gonna be, but I'm definitely not where I want to be now. I've got a lot to forget, and I've got a lot to remember as I move forward. So if God is revealing to you that you've been content to be still, God is being kind to you. He's being kind and he's growing you, but it's good for you to know that he has not given up on you. So what do we do when we keep failing? What do we do when shame continues to find us? You know, he says something very, very fascinating, very powerful in this passage. He says that he has made us his own. He's made us his own. And when he adopted us, he knew us intimately. And I mean, he knew everything. I will tell you, this truth, this, this singular truth, and I, I mean nothing, nothing has helped me defeat besetting sin more than this single truth, the fact that God knew everything and was still kind to adopt me. I mean, we're ultimately fearful that when we sin, like in a repeatable way, that we have somehow surprisingly depressed God, like He didn't see it coming, like we really let Him down, uh, like we've ruined his view and his, his idea of who we are, right? And that's where a lot of shame comes from. I'm here to tell you, when he knocked you off of your horse, when you were on your way to Damascus, and he changed your life, he had known every single sinful deed and thought that passed through your brain from the time of birth up until that time, and he knows every single thing that you will do that is not glorifying to God and for the rest of your life. And with everything behind you and everything in front of you, your whole life on display before Christ... He still loves you. He adopts you. He pulls you close, not a future version of yourself, knowing everything about you. I call this a long love of God, a persevering, a kind love of God, and that is meant to draw you and me closer to him. It's meant to, like a tractor beam, pull us in to a very tight proximity with Jesus. This is how Paul says it to the Roman church in the second chapter. He says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Meditating on the kindness of God has helped me stop looking behind me. It's helped me stop looking around me. It's helped me reach for more of Christ. You'd think it would do the opposite, right? You'd think it'd cause us to just kind of stick it neutral, knowing that, well, God's not gonna love me any less. He can't love me anymore, so I might as well do whatever I want to do. You'd think that that's what it would do. And I would say for a lot of people, that's exactly what it does do. But if it is doing that to you, that means you don't, you don't know the gospel very well. It's, it's not alive in you. It's not speaking clearly to you, which is why he says you would be presuming on his kindness and patience if that's where we find you. This kindness is, that has made us his own, it provokes us to run the race strenuously in reaching The author of Hebrews, not Paul, it could be Apollos, that's the best we we know, but the author of Hebrews says in, in chapter 12, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Same imagery, running with endurance while shucking off everything that is holding us back forgetting anything that would slow us down, remembering everything that would speed us up. I think many Christians aren't very effective in this world because they are trying to do too many things. They're not focused on one thing. I think it's, I think it's plenty fine to have a lot of goals in this world as long as all of our goals are subservient to our numero uno goal of finding and, and, and attaining more of Christ. If you wanna grow a business, grow a business. You wanna run for office, you should run for office. Want to get married? Get married. Make a lot of money? Make a lot of money, right? Those are all not bad goals if they are subservient to the single goal of knowing Christ more. But as soon as that equation flops and your singular number one goal is to build a better marriage or to build a better business or to build a better physique or whatever you want to do. And Christ's number fourth goal You can see, you can see how you are all of a sudden looking behind you, looking around you. You're remembering the wrong things. You're forgetting the wrong things. This is how Christ shows us this in real time in Luke 9. Whenever he's calling disciples unto himself, yet another said in verse 61, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Okay, Jesus is not being a jerk here. He's not saying, hey, no, you can't say goodbye to your family, just DM them on the way to the next town. If you, turn, if you go to home right now, then you're not fit to be with me. That's not what he's doing right now. It's a totally different sermon. We don't have time to really anchor down in it, but there is a lot in this passage. Whenever he says, I want to go back and say farewell, There's a lot. This wouldn't have taken just a few minutes. This would have taken a long time. He's trying to um, get the best of his inheritance. He's trying to get the best of his social relationships there and have Jesus. He wants Jesus plus is what's going on in this. Again, it's a different sermon. But what we're trying to see from what Paul is saying through that filter is don't look back. Forget what is slowing you down. Remember what speeds you up. Reach for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. And what does that even mean, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? It just sounds like flowery speech. In the early Olympic games, when somebody would win a race or finish a race, they would be placed in a a podium setting, not too different from the podiums we have now in races, and their name would be announced by a herald. It'd be a professional herald. Would announce your name, your family's name, the nation you're from, and then would give you a palm branch. We actually haven't changed that too much now. That's why when you watch the Olympics, they put you on a podium, they say your name, and then they play the song from your nation as they give you a wreath or whatever else they're given that that particular Olympics. This is most likely what Paul had in mind when he refers to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that we are placed in a situation where our name is called and then our new family's name is called as we are part of a new family and a new nation. And the prize that we are given is not a palm branch that represents peace, but a different peace. The one who rescued us, the one who knocked us off our horse as we were headed away from Christ, and we get to see him eye to eye, and we get to know him deeply, and, and all that we were dissatisfied with in this life because of how distant we were from Christ is collapsed in that one single moment where we could not be closer. That is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We get to see glory forever. Listen, if you're saved, if you're a Christian today, let me ask you some questions. When you look back, what is telling you not to reach forward? What is around you that's distracting you? What is it that's telling you that you shouldn't, that you can't, that you'd be wise not to? Can you turn from the sin that says God is not enough, so I need these other things? Can you do that? Can you repent for the sin that says God is insufficient? Can you turn from the disbelief that has led you into this boringly predictable, dull, stagnant, still life? Can you repent for that? You know that's a sin. You're not a victim. Can you pray for God to ruin you for anything else except for him and him alone? Can you, that's a dangerous prayer, right? To pray that God would ruin your heart for all the the very good things of the world or make them all subservient to him as the number one goal in our life? Can you do that? That's what this passage is inviting us to do. That's how we respond to a passage like this. That's what repentance would look like. Now, I know not everybody's a Christian. I know some of you were searching. And if you've made it this far in the video, you're definitely searching, right? You didn't hit delete 20 minutes ago. Listen, let me just tell you, your best life is found not where Jesus is furthest and the the pain is furthest, but where Jesus is closest. That's where your truest joy will be found. Not where you're furthest from the pain, but where you're closest to Jesus. And sometimes that will be in pain and suffering. I mean, you've spent likely a lifetime reaching and grabbing and stretching for the wrong things, running the wrong race, to the wrong prize, wrong goal, wrong everything, wrong direction. This is how you've spent your life, else you wouldn't be searching right now. Can you ask God today to reveal his beauty and his truth to you? Can you ask God to fascinate you with a picture of his glory? Can you ask him to change your heart? Can you ask him to give you a heart of flesh for the heart of stone? Can you ask God to ruin you of all other attempts and endeavors in this world except for him alone? Can you do that? And listen, I know we're not all able to take communion together. I know the people at Legacy, probably around this same moment, are about to start taking communion together. Um, If you do so as a family, uh, that's, that's great. I just want to explain, as far as we see this passage, Communion is our joining Jesus in a meal that symbolizes his deepest suffering, where the deepest joy is found, but it is his deepest suffering. You just need to know that living a safe life and taking a dangerous meal are incongruent with each other. (laughs) Communion for me a lot of times is a resetting spiritual discipline. It is a beautiful moment where I can say, God, I am still here to lose my life for you. I'm taking the bread and the juice, or the bread and the wine. I'm taking this and I'm remembering the symbol of how you lost your life for me, and I'm here to tell you I am still, this day, losing my life for you, that I might find my life in you. I'm gonna lose my life at this point, I'm gonna let go of the things, I'm gonna forget what is behind I'm gonna reach forward. Communion helps us with this. And listen, just for all of us, just as we move from this moment just to know there will be a day, and I love to finish my sermons with that phrase, there will be a day, where we're all gonna remember the right things. We're all gonna remember what life was like, the highs and the lows, and all of it will just build more texture and beauty and love for God. Your joy and those days which will go on forever, will never be stagnant or still, which means the glory that you see and the joy you experience will increase every second. We're not used to joys like that here on earth, you understand. When we eat a good meal, it's really good. It rarely gets like exponentially better. It just kind of stays at that good life or that good level, right? Same thing with a good song. You hear a song, it might get a little better as you hear it, but it, it doesn't really always get better every time you hear it. With Christ, it's different. In the end of all ends, when we see him, his glory and our joy will exponentially rise every second for eternity upon eternity upon eternity, forever after forever, for after forever. That is what we have. That's a very big gift to us. So think about these things. Um, Wrestle with these things and be thankful for these things. And just as I said, forget what is slowing you down. Remember what is speeding you up. Listen, we love you. Excited to see you come around us again whenever you get the opportunity to do so. If you need anything, let us know on our website and we will be happy to help you in any way possible. I hope you have a great weekend. Have a great week. We will see you next week. God bless you.